Hi, everyone. This is Patrick Donahoe. Welcome to the Wealth Standard Podcast. We are in episode nine this week, and I have a very special guest. Her name is Carol Roth. She is a New York Times bestselling author, and she wrote the book, The Entrepreneur Equation. Now, Carol has been involved in a lot of startups and uh, also has consulted for a number of companies and has had a perspective on uh, new businesses, entrepreneurs that, uh, that most don't have. And so it's going to be uh, an awesome, uh, awesome conversation. You can contact her <clears throat> or learn more about her at carolroth.com. Uh, but she also has a business that she has started, which is called Future File, and it's uh, www.futurefile.com. So you're going to love the interview. Can't wait for you to hear it. Also, on another note, uh, definitely go to our website. If you're not signed up for our newsletter, uh, thewealthstandard.com, we have a lot of exciting developments uh, coming out in the next uh, next few months. Uh, first is the book that I've been working on for the last uh, last several years called Heads I Win, Tails You Lose. Finally ready to go. We're going to have some special things going for our loyal podcast listeners. Uh, so make sure you uh, not only sign up for the newsletter, but follow me on social media, Instagram, Facebook, etc., because uh, we're going to be announcing a few things uh, in relation to uh, the book, but some other stuff too. So definitely get uh, get connected. All right, without uh, further delay, my guest today is Carol Wolf. Welcome to the 2018 seasons of the Wealth Standard Podcast, celebrating life, liberty, and property. You are listening to Liberty Season 2. Carol, it's, uh, it's awesome to have you uh, on the show today. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, no, I'm thrilled to be able to chat with a fellow hockey fan and entrepreneurship enthusiast. So this should be a good conversation. You know, we could we could probably do a follow up one just uh, citing the parallels between hockey and <laughs> and business <laughs> activity. <laughs> wrote an article for entrepreneur.com about that it's about the you know five things you can take away from you know the stanley cup Did you <laughs> yeah a couple of years back i'll send you a link to that I'll to- we'll totally highlight that as well i would love to i'd love to see that because yeah I, I just think anything you know anything involves people anything that involves uh sports score competition Right. <laughs> one versus the other. I mean, there's so the dynamics and getting and getting smacked around a lot. There's, sure. there's a ton of <laughs> parallels for sure. Losing losing teeth, scars, like scars, <laughs> bruises. Yeah, it's a uh, you know it. Def- I think I think hockey is a, a great uh, a great school a great school to uh, to become a business owner, an entrepreneur for sure. Agree. All right, so that's our follow up. There we go. Uh, so what I want, you know, it, you've had a, a, a tremendous background. You've, it, you've had a, you know, very impressive uh, career. Uh, now you're, you know, in a, in a space where you have your, you know, own company, you're consulting with companies. Uh, but I wanted, I wanted to get into your, just what you've, what you've experienced over, over the years, uh, especially since uh, your, your books, your book is the, the entrepreneur equation. And uh, you wrote that, you know, a number of years ago, I think it was like 2011 or 2012. Um, I mean, I think anybody just looking around can just be, you know, really impressed with how much entrepreneurial activity there there is. Uh, but in your book, you take a different slant uh, slant on it. So maybe talk, you know, generally about the the theme of your book and the message you were trying to get across in it. So people have said that my book, uh, The Entrepreneur Equation, is the anti-motivational, motivational book on entrepreneurship. And it was born out of a lot of experience. I call myself a recovering investment banker. It's where I started my career. And uh, you know, at that time, advising much larger companies, but would attract 
small businesses and entrepreneurs really seeking great advice. And I kept, I kept hearing all of this really bad advice that small business owners and entrepreneurs were getting. So I did a lot of research and I was shocked to find you know, how much failure there was around small business and around entrepreneurship. I mean, the numbers are in, you, you, can, you can debate the you know, three years, five years or whatnot, but the, the aggregate of it is in the high 90% of all businesses fail. Most businesses you know, don't create a profit over their lifetime. You know, most businesses never get past six figures in revenue. And so hearing people who had these incredible ideas and dreams and were going and dipping into their life savings and spending five figures and six figures in very much a non-lean startup sort of way to pursue something that, you know, they may not have had a lot of experience with where they really weren't the right person or it wasn't the right time in their life. You know, I said, you know, I want to stop this and, and, and save people, you know, heartache and, and time and money because there's so many people who are selling the seven secrets to success or the silver bullet and unfortunately, entrepreneurship, and frankly, I would argue most of anything, isn't like that. Uh, the overnight successes often take 10 or 20 years to make. And, you know, unfortunately, that story is not glamorous. So you don't hear about it. But that's the common story that happens every day. And so that's why I went down that route. And th- the funny thing is when I went out to seek publishers, I actually got a lot of flack for it. I, I had a lot of publishers turn down the book because they said, you know, we don't have the heart to tell people that they're not going to be successful or that they might not be successful. We want to encourage people. And I was like, well, you're not really doing anybody a favor here. Um, you know, I kind of think that that hurts people if you're not realistic with them. And then after the book became very successful, then the publishers all called me and wanted to do a second book with me. And I said, you know, what we really loved about your book is that it was, you know, so refreshing and it really took the other side of it. And I'm like, oh, that's funny. A couple of months ago, that's what you told me you hated about it. So success throws everything out the window. What can I tell you? Well, if you look at, you know, that that was, you know, 2011, 2012, I mean, there were, there were entrepreneurial things going on, right? You, you had uh, businesses starting up, you had, you know, just getting out of the kind of great, great recession to, to an extent, uh, there was some uh, liquidity, but from then till now, I mean, it is, it's amazing just how many, you know, how many startups there are, how many, you know, new things are coming out uh, every, every day, it seems like. And I would say that the typical statistics of business failure uh, is, I don't know if it's different, but I know that there are some kind of commonly held stats in regards to angel investors, right? Where they bet on, you know, this, uh, this white, you know, white uh, unicorn, they call them unicorns, I guess, but it's, you know, they're betting on losing them the majority of their, of, uh, of their investments. Right. So are you, are you surprised at all? Like maybe talk about how you've observed the uh, just the growth in entrepreneurial activities uh, since, since your book and, and uh, are you surprised by how uh, how big it is? Well, you know, it's funny. So in terms of the actual numbers, we actually have fewer people starting a business today, if you can believe it, than back in 2011, 2012. Mm. But what has happened is that people are starting you know, more innovative businesses that you know have the opportunity to really stand on their own merits. And I think that fewer people... 
um, are, you know, I'm sure that my book maybe had a tiny little effect, but maybe for other reasons, including the fact that the economy has gotten better and that they have more opportunities to get actual jobs, they're starting less of these what I call hobby businesses or job businesses. So I think that there's been a shift in the types of businesses that um, people are pursuing. That being said, you know, while it is easier than ever to start a business and to reach people, it's harder to have an impact because there are so many things that are competing for people's attention. And frankly, everybody's minds are completely clogged and overwhelmed with messaging between social media and their phones. And now you've got you know, Alexa and your house talking to you and, you know, everywhere you go is, is information and messaging. So it's easier for people to start, but I think it's still as difficult as ever to be successful. And I think it'll be interesting to see we're kind of in the peak um, of what I would consider the VC or angel investing cycle. And uh, having been in the industry for uh, more than a couple of decades, I've, I've seen this go up and down several times. So I can kind of, I can kind of see, you know, stupid things like scooter companies getting billion dollar valuations pretty much tells you that you're near the peak. And I would imagine within the next six to 12 months, you know, capital is just going to be much more difficult to get. And I would say you probably over the next, you know, 12 to 18 or maybe 24 months, you're going to see a shakeout and a lot of companies that you thought were, you know, fantastic or innovative or interesting are going to, you know, run out of capital and realize that they don't have sustainable business models. Well, maybe let's, let me, let me ask that question. As you, if you've looked at, you know, companies that have uh, succeeded, that have become profitable, that have made an impact, that have breaking, broken through the noise that's, that's, you know, everywhere now and growing. Yeah. Uh, what's the, di- like, what's the difference between th- those type of companies and the companies that, you know, maybe they, even they have a good idea, uh, but still, but still fail. Like, what do you see as some of the differences between uh, that success and failure? Yeah, ideas actually almost don't even matter. You can have stupid ideas that are successful and really good ideas that fail. It's it's really about execution. So in the context of execution, it's the right people pursuing the right opportunities at the right time. If you look at the very successful companies, you know, pretty much every single one of them that is successful has the right person or team behind it that, you know, is able to pivot, is able to keep pushing, is able to pursue something with that sense of urgency that has to get done now, but still understanding that it could take time to, to affect. And so I think that the, the people equation is the absolute most important factor. And if you ask any investor worth their salt, you know, they're always betting on the jockey. They're not betting on the horse. So the people thing is critical, but it also has to be the right time because sometimes the infrastructure isn't there or sometimes, you know, if you're the first person in the market or the first company in the market, you spend all your money uh, educating somebody and, and educating the market about the the product and the need. And then somebody comes along later and does it better. You know, Google was not the first search engine. Facebook was not the first social platform. You know, somebody else went in there and and created that landscape and educated the market. And then they were able to come in with the right team and do it better. So, you know, it it really is that trifecta of person, opportunity, and time. So, you know, right now you have 
you have all the, you know, more and more, you know, entrepreneur call, you know, collegiate level classes. And are they, are they teaching the, the team, the team dynamic and, you know, having the right people, what those people, uh, who those people are, what roles they have. I mean, are, are they, do, do you know enough to, to speak intelligently about just, you know, what is, what's, what's being taught or what's, you know, being created as the, the narrative of why a, a, a company will succeed or fail? So I've, I've seen, I've spoken in a lot of colleges, I've seen a lot of entrepreneurial programs, and I think it varies. I think it's really difficult to teach that conceptually at the college level. I think that it's something that if you don't have any experience and you haven't been out there and seen different management styles that work and don't work or don't have people that you know have those competencies and are really good at it hiring is like the one of the most difficult things and it's extremely difficult for entrepreneurs so you know it anything that you could say in a classroom is is you know not a substitute for experience and i will contend that you know facebook is as successful as it is not because of mark zuckerberg but because of sheryl sandberg yeah. and that having somebody having that you know, adults in the room who was really good at, you know, setting that culture and, you know, helping to figure out, you know, the hiring practices and, and all those things, because it, it really does take a full team to do it. And, and if you don't do that, you can get successful to a point, but then it comes and it, it bites you. And you can look at a company like Uber that obviously had an incredible visionary CEO who, you know, hired rightly in terms of the concept, but in terms of managing a culture, failed miserably and ultimately was extracted from his own company because of that. No, it's so, in, hard, to, hard to learn that. It is, and it's, you know, it's one of those, you know, have, having the experience, you know, being, being on the, uh, on the on the front lines. I mean, there's nothing that I don't think can can, re, can replace that. Uh, but that's you know that's what I would that's what I would say is you know as you're speaking to these these groups, uh, what do you what are you telling them? Like, what do you if, if they do have those tendencies and they you know want to make it big and they want to you know take an idea that they may have and and uh, and build a company around it. I mean, what do you what do you typically give to them as as uh, as as advice so that they don't you know, repeat the, you know, the typical cycle of an entrepreneur? I think that it's really important to hire for values above skills. And, you know, certainly any technology company that is, um, you know, having a lot of engineers on staff is going to roll their eyes at me. And, and, yes, you need to have people who are great engineers, but that can't make up a culture. Mm -hmm. And so you can, for, you know, sort of the non-highly technical positions, you can hire people who fit with your mission and with their values and teach them certain skills and how to do things. Cause the reality is stuff moves so quickly, whatever you've, you've already come in the door with, you know, half of that's obsolete in six months. So you have to be continually learning. But I think that really knowing that what you stand for and hiring against that, you know, there are too many people who are just giant a-holes um, who are incredibly smart. And unless you did do what uh, Nolan Bushnell did with Steve Jobs and, you know, create a night shift that doesn't exist so that you can have his brilliance and not have him interact with anybody, um, you know, having those kinds of people 
within a, a entrepreneurial culture can really make it extremely toxic and get in the way of you, you know, serving your customer and fulfilling your mission. Yeah. And it's, and it's, a. Um... I mean, anything that's, you know, it's, is in scale is, uh, is a, is a team effort and getting people, uh, I'm just, I, I, I have a kind of a new lens over the last few years of just looking at how, you know, how organizations operate. And I think it's, it's, it's fascinating. It may not be like a business from a business standpoint, it may, you know, be it from a social standpoint, but just how, you know, a, a body of individuals, uh, get together and accomplish something, you know, especially at yeah. a larger scale is, is just, it's just fascinating. I mean, I remember, I remember maybe a year or so ago and, you know, not, not that Tesla is the epitome of, you know, of a, of a, of a good company, but I remember like reading an article in, in, in which, uh, you know, Elon Musk had responded to this complaint through Twitter, right. Of this guy who you know, said that people were parking at the charging stations and, you know, within a, you know, within less than a week, he was able to, you know, not him, obviously, but his team was able to address the issue, reprogram everything and come up with the solution. And that may seem trivial, right? But it's just on a company that's at that scale, being able to execute something so quickly, right? Is, uh, is it's, it's, in, it's impressive. Uh, yeah, and I think it, they, it, go, no, ahead. go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. No, I was going to say it, it's definitely interesting. And I think that some of the founders have a tendency to lean one way or another that either they're leaning and doing that internally but not externally or in Elon Musk's case maybe a little bit more externally and not enough internally mm-hmm. and you have to find that balance because you have multiple stakeholders you have mm-hmm. stakeholders in your employees you have stakeholders in your customers and for most companies you have stakeholders in your shareholders and you have to make them all happy and that's a, that's a difficult dance to yeah. do and, you know, I also wanted to say something about, you know, the whole concept of diversity and inclusion. And, you know, I have sort of a different perspective on it. Um, I think that it's important, but I don't think it should be mandated. Um, a lot of people are, are very set about, you know, having their quotas of, you know, women or people of color. And I think that's horrible as a woman. Um, you know, I never want to be the token person. I want to be there because, you know, I, I, I should have a seat at the table and I have that experience. But I think it's also important just from having a great company standpoint to have people who have diversity of experiences and thought. And so if everybody in that room, you know, looks a lot like you and has all the same backgrounds, you're doing your company a disservice. Mm-hmm. So I, too many companies are just freaking lazy. They don't hire people just because they don't know. They, you know, they hang out with their buddies and they don't want to be bothered going out and, and searching more broadly. And I think that, you know, you're doing yourself a disservice and it's not because you need to have a certain number of this person or a certain number of that person. Um, but by having that diversity of experience, you're going to help yourself in terms of your culture, in terms of, you know, the way that you approach and look at problems in terms of, you know, being able to understand a wider customer base and the like. And so that's something too, I tend to often be uh, the only woman in the room, which again, doesn't bother me, but you know, a lot of times the, the reason is just because people are lazy. So as you're, so, cause you're, you consult, you consult with companies, right. And, and, and address a lot of these issues. I'm, I'm assuming, uh, how do you, how do you go about having that dialogue with, with, uh, with a business and talking about, you know, the importance of culture and, you know, then, then where do you go from there? How do you, how do you typically pro- provide advice, but then direction? 
Yeah, so, you know, I uh, my background in consulting is usually pretty specific on, you know, areas of problem solving or corporate finance or deals or, you know, something that's pretty specific. Um, I'm not usually providing general feedback except for, you know, the places where I've been. I've been on a public company board and I've been on the advisory boards of, you know, several companies, including those that I've been invested in. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, my tactic is to just say what's on my mind. And, you know, that uh, is something that I have brought to bear. You know, one of the companies that I'm investing in um, has one woman on the team and we wanted to make sure that she had stock options and that she was, you know, it, she wasn't a founder of the company, but she was brought in an important role. We wanted to make sure that she had a stake mm-hmm. and thought that it was important because, again, not because she was a woman, but because she was an important part of the team. And, you know, the the founder was like, yeah, absolutely, and made it happen. So, you know, it's just having that open dialogue. And I think for entrepreneurs, uh, making good use of your advisors, I think that's a, a huge issue for entrepreneurs who go out and they get these amazing advisory boards with all these high-profile people and then they don't really know how to use them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, th- these people are busy. If they're on your board and they're serving a purpose, it's because they're busy doing other things and they're probably not coming to you necessarily with ideas. So it's making sure that you're having regular meetings and it's making sure that you are proactively talking to them about issues as well. So you, so with companies that you're investing in, I know that you have your own, your own company right now uh, too. Like when you how do you evaluate, you know, other than financials, how do you, how do you evaluate uh, the, the company that you decide to uh, invest with? And then maybe segue into uh, what you're working on right now, which I think is really cool and how you went about forming your, uh, your team. Sure. So my background is actually in more middle market investing and I really prefer to do middle market investing because it's much easier to evaluate an existing business. And while you don't get as high of total returns, your risk adjusted returns are much higher because you're certainly not taking on as much risk. So I just know from being in the industry, depending on what type of company it is, if it has a certain value of uh, or amount of EBITDA that, you know, it's going to have a valuation within a certain amount of range. And then it's looking at things like, you know, can the management team execute on their plan? Is their plan realistic? You know, what are the potential pitfalls? What's the exit strategy? Is this something that's going to be easy to sell to a strategic or has the opportunity to go public? Or is it convoluted where acquirers are going to want a piece of the business, but maybe not other pieces of the business? You know, do they have, um, you know, concentration issues and risks with customers that if one customer goes away, that that tanks the business. So there's a whole litany of things to evaluate there. It's much, much more difficult um, to evaluate startups. And my number one criteria is the management team. Mm -hmm. You know, is this a team that I think that can execute and that, you know, is going to do what they say they're going to do is going to take it. Seriously, um, big red flags for me are founders you know, who are looking for a big salary, and uh, you know are looking for you to fund their their lifestyle because you know they could have X sort of job. I want somebody who's committed, has their skin in the game, and and can execute and can you know follow up on feedback and and make things happen. So that you know that's going to be huge, and then obviously it has to be an opportunity 
um, that I think is relevant and then have some sort of a, a moat around it. Like what's, what's the reason that we're going to be able to exit? Are they building an interesting technology that's going to make sense for, you know, A, B, or C type of buyer? Um, you know, you know, who, who is the likely buyer? You know, what, at what point would they likely buy them out and at what kind of valuation? So there's definitely, uh, a lot of factors that go in there, but as I said, I, I try to limit, um, you know, some of the, the early stage stuff just because it's just, it really is a crapshoot. And like you brought up earlier, if you are a VC or an angel, you are investing in a whole slew of things with the hope that one hits really big. And then that makes up for all the other losers. And so you have to be able to do that too, um, on a smaller scale, if you're doing a smaller, footprint of angel investing. So what, so what led you, cause those are great. That's great. Those are great, great comments. I mean, it's, I would say it, you know, your, your perspective on things is different, uh, different than most. And I would say, you know, most, most uh, employees have a, a big group of younger, younger employees and, you know, they have entrepreneurial tendencies and they uh, have not had necessarily the, the experience. Uh, and, you know, oftentimes, you know, that, uh, that clouds their, clouds their vision. And I think, you know, failure often does, well, I think more so than not comes about because of lack, lack of experience and not understanding really the elements that do, uh, make up a, he- a healthy company, right? Cause it's not the idea. The idea, like you said, is I would say, you know, the least, uh, least valuable. Yes. <laughs> interesting. It's great. I have actually have an, ex- I have a couple examples in my book and one of my favorite is the UFC. So the UFC several years ago was on the verge of bankruptcy. So mm-hmm. you could say it was basically worthless when um, the Fertitta brothers and Zayna White decided to purchase it. And then they went in and changed the format and you know threw some money behind it and had a very different execution plan. And then ultimately, as you know, about a year ago, they sold it for, I think it was like $4 billion. So how do you have the same company that's worth zero and then $4 billion? And the answer is it's the execution of the business is not the idea because the fundamental idea of having a mixed martial arts league is still there. It's the same idea. Mm -hmm. It was just done in a different manner. So again, the idea... And also, I mean, if, if you want to really get into stupid ideas, when Starbucks came out, hey, let's put a coffee shop on every single corner with really expensive coffee when you can get it at Dunkin' Donuts, you can make it at home cheap. I mean, that's a stupid idea, right? But, I mean, brilliant execution and one of the biggest success stories of the last 20 In years. In US history, I know. Yeah, so, I mean, you, you know, the, the, the idea factor is, like you said, is, is, is almost irrelevant to the equation. So tell us about, you know, how you, how you got the idea of uh, future file and yes. where that was born. And then, you know, where, where you're at right now with, uh, uh, with the business and what your vision is. Yes. So, um, as so many entrepreneurs, uh, my business was born out of personal experience and seeing necessity and uh, while I've done lots of really cool things in my life, I have also been struck with lots of tragedy. And uh, when I was a senior in college, my boyfriend was killed in a car accident at the age of 21. Oh. And while I was mourning that, my mother was diagnosed with leukemia. And about a year or so later, she passed away the day after her 51st birthday. And then a few years after that, my stepmother was diagnosed with uh, lung cancer, 
and she passed away at age 55. So my father, in his infinite wisdom, said, you know, if something were to happen to me, you and your sister are the only ones left, and, you know, you have to know what to do. And so I'm going to give you information and wishes and documents and policies and keys, and I want you to put it all in a file. And, you know, we kind of went, okay, Dad, yeah, whatever whatever you say. Even though we'd been through this before, you know, you'd think that we'd be like, yeah, you know, that, that could happen. But we, we just sort of figured we'd been through that, and, you know, we wouldn't have to worry about that. Well, lo and behold, five years ago, my father was in a freak accident, and my sister said, you know, that crazy file Dad had us put together, grab it and come to the hospital. And we had to pull out his wishes for when he was incapacitated and what he wanted to happen. We had to find a power of attorney, which we had. Uh, we had to have a key to move his car and get into his house, all these kinds of things. And they were all within this file. And he ultimately didn't make it. And we had to lay the body to rest and do these ceremonies and services and wrap up his personal affairs. And in this whole crazy dance, if we hadn't had this file, then we not only would have had a lifetime of burden of did we make the right decision, which I would not want to walk around with every day, Mm -hmm. but we saved more than 10,000 tangible dollars because of his pre-planning for the funeral and saying, I don't need the Cadillac of caskets and I don't need to have flowers and I don't, I only want a graveside service and all these things that are so incredibly expensive for the five figures we did spend. He put in end of life insurance. So we, you know, we had that covered. And then the most important thing for me as a, a busy person is I saved hundreds of hours of time trying to track down all of his accounts and policies and figure out if I had found everything. So having all of these benefits and telling people about it, everyone kept saying, you know, my parents or my grandparents are aging. I need to do that for them. Or I have a spouse who doesn't know what's going on financially in my household. I really like to make sure that she's prepared or, you know, we've got kids. We want to make sure they're taken care of the right way. And so, you know, we realized that nobody had done a really good job of creating a roadmap to put forth your information and wishes, speak to the person who's left behind and also cover not just passings, but aging issues. Because, you know, for people who are around our age, um, obviously a lot of people have parents who are aging aging parents are the new children and if your parents aren't that sharp anymore all of a sudden you're going to be in a caregiver role or you're going to have to figure that out or you might have to backstop their financial accounts or you may have to make a medical decision so we wanted to give this gift that our father had given to us to other families and that's how future file was born and uh, you know now now we're on a mission to protect uh, millions of families and that, you know, it is a, you know, the business that I'm in, it, it is a, it, it's a huge, it's a huge need because number one, I think the, the, the conversation of, you know, those that are aging right now, which are in the, the baby boomer generation, uh, they're, they, they hold things close to their chest and they don't yeah. uh, let family, and, and this is not a, you know every case, but most cases, you know, they hold the cards close to the chest. They don't let, you know, their kids or their grandkids or really anybody know uh, what they have going on. And then once, you know, something does happen, whether it's, you know, mental uh, incapacity or whether it's uh, uh, death, you know, th- it, it now becomes, you know, this, uh, this, this search that, that can last uh, up to, up to years. 
And so it's a, it's an, this is an interesting way that I would say bridges, bridges the gap because, you know, setting something like this up, it doesn't have to be the, the children setting it up. Uh, it could be the, you know, the parent that's, that's yeah. initiating it. Uh, and then just making sure things are, are in order so that if something does happen, then there's uh, there's directive because there's, you know, I've seen instances where families are ruined because they don't have something like this in place because you have to make those decisions. And then one family member thinks this, one family member thinks this, and now you have, you know, quandary. And, and it's, I don't know, it's a, it's, it, it, it makes a lot of sense for those that have actually gone through this experience. Those that haven't, you know, I, I think they may see some value in it, but I would say for those that have really experienced the hardship associated with settling affairs, man, this is like a, it's a godsend. Well, and I will tell you, we, we priced this. I, I took every business lesson and I threw it out the window. So I did not create a recurring revenue stream. I did not do a subscription model. I priced it low. It's one-time fee of $99.99. And I did it expressly so that people wouldn't have that excuse of, hey, this is too expensive or I didn't want to do it. Because those of us who've been through this before know it's important and are going to go ahead and do it. It's the people that haven't that need to do it. And it's, you know, kind of like insurance. You don't wait till your house is on fire mm-hmm. to go out and buy some insurance. You go and you, you spend the four to six hours it takes to fill this out with your family. The kid guides you through the whole thing. And like you said, you don't end up in these fights. And now that I'm in this industry, I hear about this every day. And it just frustrates me for the people who haven't done this. People who are fighting somebody who, whose father passed away and he and his sister were fighting on whether he wanted to be cremated or buried because mm-hmm. father never said that. I had a doctor who bought one who said he wished he had it for his dad because there was a safe deposit box and they couldn't find the key. And -hmm. it took them six months of going through the house to find the key. And the bank was like, yeah, we have to drill it open at great expense to you. That's the whole point of a safety deposit box. We don't make extra keys. So little things like that that you just don't think about, even if you've done some organization that literally for less than $100, you know, will save you so much time, so much money, and so many headaches. Well, one thing you, one thing you, you place kind of in, in the, the description of what Future File is, which is, which is a legacy. Uh, and then, you know, I, I think most people are, have this instinct to to make a difference, right? And they may not articulate it like that, but to, to leave a legacy, to make a difference, to know that they've impacted, uh, impacted someone. I would say if, if affairs are in order, they could have made huge impacts and, and, and been a big influence on a person's life. Those last couple of years, though, if affairs are in order, it could, it could potentially ruin a legacy. Uh, and because it, it's everything that will be remembered is basically how uh, the estate wasn't settled, how affairs weren't settled, how they weren't organized, and you know the hassle and heartache and disruption to family that uh, that was caused. Because yeah, I've, like I said, I've, I've maybe not not with you know knowing what the safety deposit key is, but I would say there's a there's a, a broad aspect, a broad aspect of you know properly planning your legacy uh, so that the the transition is uh, is I want to say seamless, but as seamless as possible. Right. And when it, with aging care costs, too, getting to be so expensive that if you haven't had this talk and you haven't made preparations to cover those costs or protect assets, that basically you could have created a financial legacy, whether it's small or large, to pass down to your kids and your grandkids. And if you don't do the planning for that, it could end up all 
being eaten up by aging care and health care and the like. So, you know, again, it, there's so many different aspects, emotional, financial, and time that just spending, you know, this, these few hours to address them. Because if you don't address them, your kids are going to have to. And that was the biggest issue. I remember in doing mine with my dad, who, as I said, created this prototype, the same issue that happened to him, this, this whole, like, getting in a freak accident and being incapacitated and how much you know, care do you want and when do we pull the plug. I remember having that discussion with him. And, you know, at first he said, I, I want to live forever. So if, you know, if they can keep it going, keep it going. And I remember saying, do you really want me to do that? And he's saying, well, I don't care. It's up to you. And I was like, no, you have to care. You have to make this decision because if you don't make this decision, I'm going to have to make it. Mm-hmm. And he went, ah, you're right. Okay. And then he came to down to earth and made a decision and crazy enough that, you know, six months later we were in that exact scenario and had to use that. So you know, it, it's just so important. And again, having a sort of a third party and a kit with a, a person, my personal story to help you know, guide you through it really lessens that emotional burden on the family. And it's not like I need to know it. It's like the kid's asking us to put this together. And sometimes that just makes it all the difference. So would you, would you mind, you know, as we could kind of conclude the, 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 the podcast, would, would you mind going through you know, how you, you know, came up with the idea, then how you executed based on your, your experience and maybe kind of what your, what your team looks like today that is actually operating this, uh, this business. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, this is the the funny thing that, you know, being somebody who has been an entrepreneur and has advised on entrepreneurship and then going and doing your own project. The one thing I knew is that it was going to take much longer than it should have. And, you know, so I had that realistic expectation going in, which provided me a level of sanity. Um, I am also a slightly insane person that likes to do things in a certain way. And so um, minimal, minimum viable product doesn't always work for me. Mm-hmm. And in this particular case, I decided to do minimum viable product in beta And I was in beta for three years (laughs) and we have two different products. We have a hard copy product and a software product. And we didn't really know. We didn't know what the market was going to want. We didn't know what the feedback was going to be. And so we just chose to let the market try it out. And we had really wide group of people weigh in, you know, all different experts who are related to the product from estate planners to financial planners to aging care representatives. So we could get that technical feedback. But then we also had straight couples and gay couples and, you know, people who were older and people who were younger and people who lived in Canada and, you know, just all different kinds of people all across the nation continually giving us feedback. And we scrapped lots and lots of versions and efforts of the product before settling on, you know, the current versions that are available. And, you know, it, it all seems very simple, but the simplicity of it now is because we went through this sort of iterative product process. Um, my team, I have about six people on my team um, across all of my businesses, but not all of them are focused on Future File. Um, but we also have a number of outsourced partners. So my tech development team is outsourced. My web development team is outsourced. And my fulfillment team is outsourced. 
so, you know, that was sort of a decision that I made, too, in terms of staying in our lane and doing what we knew that we can do and really focus on and, you know, not necessarily bringing in-house the competencies for things that we didn't feel like we needed to do. So that was a... That was a decision. So how do you go about, because it sounds like you have other businesses as well. How do you, how do you go about uh, orchestrating the, the different outsourced parties? Like what are, what are some of the methods you use to, to ensure that, you know, you're hitting deadlines, you're achieving the objectives. Like how can you just take a moment and walk through that? Yeah. So I, one of our strengths, and it's a personal strength of mine, and it's a personal strength of my sisters, who's my right hand uh, woman, I guess, oh, cool. is that we're incredibly efficient and very highly, highly organized. And so, you know, we have a procedure we follow every day of, you know, what is being checked in uh, that she oversees from the different businesses and, you know, a priority of, you know, how those things go down. And then it's also about picking really good partners to work with. And, um, you know, if people aren't pulling their weight, being willing to get rid of them and bring in different partners who are better um, so that you can do that. But I try to catalog everything. I keep running lists of, you know, what's outstanding. And I'm very diligent. I I tend to use my calendar um, as a sort of a my own sort of project management uh, software. I'm not really good with like, you know, the base camps. I know some people like those and I love Jason Freed, who's a, a personal family friend and all of those things. It's just not the way that I do my workflow. Um, I do it by calendar. And so, you know, if we have dates that we're following, you know, those things are going on the calendar and I tend to, if I have, you know, important dates, I tend to fake those and, and, you know, make them a couple of days before they're actually due so that I'm not <laughs> flipping out when people miss them and, you know, things take a little bit longer. Um, but the part of it was just the patience of knowing, and especially with things like our, the software version of our product took a lot longer than we had hoped and, you know, a couple of different iterations but, you know, that was just it. And we didn't, you know, hold up the hard copy or analog version um, from being marketed just because the, the software wasn't ready. So, you know, we just kind of said, okay, this is what it is. And you know, this is how we're going to have to deal with it. So it's, uh, it's, it's interesting, even when you, when you know all of the right things to do, there are always outside factors. And when there are things that are outside of your own control that you don't know how to do and you're relying on teams, um, you know, you have to have that patience. Yeah. I, I've always sworn that there are probably some support groups out there for those that have to deal <laughs> with software development, <laughs> especially the operation or management management of it. Uh, but no, it's a, it's a, yeah, yeah it's, it's software. Yeah. Software development is a, is a, you know, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting animal. That's a podcast for, for another uh, another day, maybe we but can. I will. I will tell you though, our QA people were the most amazing people I've ever met in my entire life. Like they were so my kind of people. The QA people, every, you're saying? yeah, that okay. they had a, a a procedure. We got an update every day. We got a list of defects. We got snapshots. I mean, like literally, it was. I was like, oh my god, if everybody worked like this, like the world would be a better place. So. Um, even though the development people don't always work like that, the QA people were amazing. <laughs> it's like, yeah, project man- project manager and a QA person are like the most exactly. important roles on a development team. 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, let's let's end let's end with this. Uh, who are who are some of the 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 icons or the uh, you know archetypes or the or actual people that you that you're inspired by that you're uh, that you follow that have you know impacted you or influenced you, whether it's a, a, a personal or impersonal. Okay, so I'm like the worst person. I don't like follow people and I don't idolize other people. Mm-hmm. I think people are people. Um, you know, certainly there are lots of really interesting stories out there. And I think that there's something to, to take away from a whole variety of people, but I'm more in sort of the, the five minute mentor mo- mode where, you know, I, I look at somebody's story, take a little nugget from them and move on. I do not try to sort of emulate anybody's past. I've never, had sort of a, a person that I've looked up to or a company that I've tried to emulate. And it, it, that may be sort of my ADD and, you know, collecting of experiences philosophy. Um, but it's just, it's never been my mentality. It's just one of those things that I've just, I've, I've never, I don't know, I've just never followed anyone. And, you know, I find that I can find, you know, some of the greatest inspirations from like super under the radar people who have, have small wins and victories every day as much as some of the, the biz, biggest successes too. So I just try to expose myself to a lot of, of different people. Um, I'm somebody who follows like 17,000 people on Twitter. Oh, wow. And uh, while I have a core group that, you know, I have in lists that I check in on regularly, I will from time to time, you know, go into that fire hose and just kind of see what the broader group of people are saying um, because I don't think that just because people have notoriety or are great at press um, that necessarily they're, you know, the, the best people. And it, it's interesting, you know, I, I kind of look at somebody like Satya Nadella, who's the CEO of Microsoft, mm-hmm. and it completely turned it around and, you know, made it into a, a total ju- juggernaut and a, a cool, innovative company that, you know, now Apple is copying <laughs> in many, many aspects. And you never see Satya in the media where, you know, some of these other CEOs are there all the time. And that's because he's, you know, heads down and focused on, on the company. So I would just encourage people to be out there and, and looking to the people that you don't know, because, you know, we, we all know the stories of the, the big names that are out there and just what can you learn from, from other people and, and just kind of the, the day to day. And, and that's just, that's sort of my philosophy. No, that's a great, it's a, it's a great response. I think, yeah, the, the, there's a lot of those famous archetypes in history, you know, maybe that, that have not just one kind of characteristic, one attribute, but, uh, but a multitude of, of them. Uh, because in the end, yeah, you're, you're a sports fan. It's like the, you know, the, the underdog, the guy that's uh, below the radar and, and, and makes the biggest difference. Those are the guys that are the most celebrated, not the guys that are, you know, waving their hand all the time. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, as we know, finishing where we started with sports, that it is so often a team effort. And there are so many amazing people who are behind some of these visionaries who, frankly, have come up with the ideas, keep them on track, make sure they're executed, who don't really get any notoriety whatsoever. So, um, it does take a village and, you know, it, it's not usually one person just being amazing and all powerful. So just be open, but, but always be open to, you know, continuing to learn. I think that that's the key thing is continue to learn, continue to be inspired and just, you know, open up 
your yourself and your possibilities to lessons, whether they're what to do or what not to do. Sometimes the best lessons are what not to do, mm -hmm. um, you know, from successes and from failures. You know, and I would echo, I'd echo that as we, as we end, it's, you know, every, there's, there's so many different roles in business now and there's so many businesses and uh, it's really cool to see. And there's lots of business being created out of just passions, like people's, you know, n just interest or intrigue with, uh, you know, whether I, on the last show I did, uh, you know, we talked about these, these Japanese candy uh, like these, this subscription model to get boxes of Japanese candy per, you know, so it's one of those, like there's, there's so many different, you know, intriguing businesses that are, uh, they're, they're, they're coming up, but it's, the point was to, to find something that, you know, you can learn about, but it's something that's, that you like, something that is enjoyable because, you know, we spend them, we spend our, almost our entire life working, right? And I would say it's the pursuit of something that's, you know, fulfilling also an environment that's, uh, that's fulfilling and healthy. Uh, but it's also something that aligns with, you know, what, uh, what interests, what interests you? Cause I think the opportunity now is, uh, is bigger than it's ever, than it's ever been. And, and hopefully it stays that way. Amen to that. And your know, time is your most fleeting resource and making sure that you're doing something that enjoy that you enjoy and that's your definition of success. You know, success is not just, you know, how many zeros you have in your net worth. There are so many elements in terms of, you know, family and fulfillment and passion and mission and giving back and, you know, all these different factors that keep your eye on your own definition of success and measure against yourself. And you have no idea what's going on in other people's lives. I mean, we see this all, all the time with these high-profile people who are either suffering from mental illness or taking their lives or those kinds of things. You just, just don't get inside other people's heads. Stay focused on what it is that's going to make you happy. And then if you do that, then you'll be successful. Well, I, I would double the AMN on that one because that's – you're, you're totally right. And it's, it's one of those things where I think people are, are starting to learn that and hopefully they're getting the message based on some of these, you know, unfor unfortunate events that have, uh, that have occurred over the last, uh, last few months of people that, you know, who on the surface look successful, uh, but, you know, peeling back the layers were uh, not ha very happy with their, with their lives. So anyway, Carol, this has been an awesome interview. Uh, and I, I appreciate your, uh, your insight and just kind of what's going on in your, in your candor and writing a book that, you know, is not uh, placating the people, right? It's really talking <laughs> about the realities of, of, uh, of entrepreneurship and, you know, and it's, uh, it's, it's awesome because I think it, it helps a lot of people to, you know, ask, uh, ask hard questions right before they start to sacrifice things that could ultimately uh, cost them, cost them a lot. So thank awesome. you for, uh, for the work you're doing. Thank, well, thank you. It's been a truly enjoyable conversation and I appreciate you highlighting the work. Thank you for joining us as the Wealth Standard Podcast spends all of 2018 celebrating life, liberty, and property. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes, and we'll see you on the next one.